Hey guys, welcome to the show. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review. Tell a friend. Uh, I've been getting a lot of uh, emails about the Christy Swanson interview. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, that was a real good dream come true. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I got one email saying it's the best one ever. And, uh, you know, that meant a lot to me. But then, uh, you know, there's been 230 episodes. So I think that's up to debate. But um, anyways, yeah, I thank you guys. You know, that, that was amazing and awesome. And uh, I had a blast. You know, uh, today's guest is someone who I admire just as much. And uh, it's going to be fun. But before I get into that, a uh, couple dates. I'll be at the Rec Room headlining uh, Friday, September 1st at 7 p.m. Get your tickets at recroomhb.com. And then I'll be at the Bray Improv with Pablo Francisco. From, yeah. Sorry, Guttermouth with Pablo Francisco. Uh, that would be the second week of September. Get your tickets at BreaImprov.com. Uh, Alan Lee uh, will not be joining me today. Victor will not be joining me today. I will be a Lone Ranger in the Lone Ranger desk. So I'm excited. Um, my guest today, uh, big fan. Uh, I watched her stand-up special from the 90s the other night. And I thought it was just it was just so great, and I'm actually going to ask her about that. But you've seen her, for people who, who didn't know, she was a stand-up. Uh, she's a great stand-up. Um, she was the host of the Rosie O'Donnell Show, which was a very big show for for me growing up. Uh, I would watch that after school with my stepmom, and uh, we just just fascinated by just how uh, amazing this person was like it was just really great uh, you've also seen her in the Flintstones which is one of my favorite movies another stakeout sleepless in Seattle a league of the own um, like I said she hosted the Rosie O'Donnell show uh, you've also seen her on the view and uh, you know she was great she was so kind to do Razor riffs so uh Guys, if you like this episode, subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend, and enjoy the interview with the great Rosie O'Donnell. You're listening to Razor Riffs with Keith Razor and Alan Lee, right here on LA Talk Radio. All right, folks, the great Rosie O'Donnell is about to come through via Zoom. Usually takes a second for the audio to come in, but she's here. Hi, Rosie O'Donnell. Hello. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for saying yes. Well, you know, I have a kid who's autistic, and I'm a supporter of all people autistic, and I thought it would be a fun thing. Oh, thank you. And I just got to say, I love your podcast, that the Onward. I'm a big fan. I've listened to about four or five episodes, and I think it's great how you share, uh, like, before you interview people, you share, like, beautiful uh, stories about your child and stuff. So I think that's really cool. Thank you so much. It's such a interesting thing to adopt a baby my fifth child I adopted at 50 years old and then to have her diagnosed at about two and a half with autism I thought well we're on a unique journey here we go you know and it's been a, a wonderful wonderful relationship that I get so much out of and you know although autism can be hard for some families yeah. and um, you really you know there are different levels and different uh challenges that people have and i just have found that what we're going through is a beautiful beautiful thing yeah i think it's also cool that they could diagnose it so early now because when i was diagnosed i was diagnosed uh when i was 13 in 1999 so you know now i i think it's cool that you know people could diagnose when they're more younger and they could get the help and the services like that 
Totally. I mean, Dakota was speaking in full sentences at one. Oh, my she, God. Yeah, she has pretty uh, intense echolalia. Oh. And she uh, was reciting parts of the Frozen movie. And she hadn't even really, you know, talked that much or put two words together. And all of a sudden we're watching it and I hear her say, I've been impaled. And I was like, what? And then I hear Olaf say, I've been impaled. And I was like, it was the same pitch. It was the same everything. I thought, oh, boy, this is something unique, you know? Yeah. Well, I got the other one. I was very nonverbal. And then I started becoming verbal when I started doing stand-up. So, oh, like, wow. so I think stand-up really saved my life, you know? And Were there, were there stand-ups you admired that you watched all the time? Uh, yeah. And that's where like, I'm very lucky. Like, uh, my, my favorite comic of all time who ended up becoming my best friend who I toured with was Norm Macdonald. Oh, so, I loved him. Yeah. So it was, um, you know, it was just great, but I want, I wanted to ask you something in the old, old standup days and like, we will kind of jump around a little, so I apologize, but I was watching your, your special. It was probably 95, 96 ish. And I noticed that when you do the stand-up, you didn't you don't take the mic out of the stand, you leave it in the stand and you carry the mic. And that's something like like I don't carry the mic, but I leave it in the stand. So I was just wondering, like, have you always done that when you did the stand-up, or was that just a spur of a moment thing? No, you know, I started with a stand, a mic in the stand, and then that leaning, you know, that kind of lean the stand a little bit to this way when you're talking or that way. But I never was one to take it out. And first of all, we had cords back then when I was doing it. So it was a long cord and it was kind of hard to, to move it around. And, and I talk with my hands a lot. And so I always did it like that. And it's funny when I, when I do specials now, I say I need a stool with a glass of water and I need a mic stand that is strong and locked in one position so I can't move it. Yeah. And then we do that backstage before I go on. But that's just how I learned, you know, and similar to when I learned skateboarding, I always put my right foot in the back. I don't know why I did it that way, but everybody that looks at me skateboarding goes, why do you do it that way? <laughs> that's how I learned it. I don't know, you know. Well, I don't know about like when you when you started, but like when I started, everyone tells me that's like everyone told me that's the wrong way. And I think like the because like in my comedy, I talk about being autistic for 45 minutes. So, like, I, I think the stand is a shield for not letting people come. You know what I mean? So, like, I, I, like... I feel the same way. I feel like it sets up a border, you know? <laughs> it sets up, like, the, the fourth wall starts right there, you know? And uh, I don't know. There's no real wrong way to do it. When you get out there, it's like surfing, when you get out there and you get up on a wave, you, you get to the shore, you did it. You know, when you do stand up and you get on the stage and you have 10 minutes to do, you have a tight 10 prepared and they all work and you're out there at 950. That's a home run. You know, you did it. So yeah. it, it's just, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has an amazing uh, series of books out, Outliers and millions of books that he he's written. He's a very intelligent man. And he says that in order to become an expert at anything, you need to invest at least 10,000 hours. Yeah, 10,000 hours. Yeah. yeah. And I think that it's true of stand-up. When people say to me, um, you know, how did you learn it? I'm like, you just have to keep doing it. You just have to do it every time, every place, anywhere that you can. I mean, I used to work bowling alleys. I used to work at Ground Round where you could throw the peanut shells on the floor and families oh, are ordering yeah. dinner in the middle of your set. You hear, uh, Lisa, your plates are up, you know. <laughs> like, so it was not an easy way to start doing stand-up, but I was very young. And, you know, when you're 16 years old, you think you, uh, you can take on the world. And if they didn't laugh, I remember thinking, well, they were stupid because I am 16. You know, I don't have any kind of introspection yet. And, and in a way, it really helped me to get up there that young, you know? Yeah. Did you ever do laundry mats? Those are the worst gigs. <laughs> no, but uh, they sound almost as bad as a bowling alley. But <laughs> how was the laundry mat gig? Oh, uh, you know, people just care about cleaning their clothes. They don't care about jokes or whatever. So it was just like, uh, whatever. 
But uh, I wanted to also compliment you on the special I watched. Uh, the guy's cell phone rang and you picked it up and you talked to his wife. And I was just wondering, was that like, because usually when people film specials, they film it four or five times. And that to me seemed like it was in the spur of a moment type of thing. Yes, it was. It was, um, we filmed twice for that one. We filmed the early show and then the late show and that was it. Then we cut it up. And Boston has such amazing, amazing audiences. I've loved performing there. It's been a really wonderful place for me and, and my kind of stand up. And, um, you know, I started there and I started in New York and then I went to college at BU. And while I was at BU, I went and worked all the clubs there and, you know, didn't go to class that much because I was up late doing 20 minutes at the Comedy Connection, you know, yeah. and uh um, yeah, so I, I remember that we only did it once and it only happened one time that it was funny enough that we said, leave it in and take out that other bit about, you know, nuns or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I just thought how you handled that was just so funny and so cool because if that would have happened to me i would have been like i would have been like dude i filmed my entire special and right yeah. at the end <laughs> you know what there is a look that i give someone in that special where i've watched i haven't watched it for a long time but i was watching it with my kids and somebody starts to talk and i just give them the side eye while i'm still doing my act and i shut them right up i was like wow that was that was pretty funny because you do feel that when you're filming one, you know, that you want everything to go right. And yeah. um, you don't want a heckler to come in and possibly ruin, you know, a, a tight 45, a tight hour. So uh, I, I've been lucky in that I haven't had any horrible hecklers. I haven't had any really bad situations. People, usually they're drunk. They're trying to help you. They don't really realize that they're definitely not helping you. Yeah, but yeah it's interesting how did you meet norm mcdonald so i met him because i i couldn't get into comedy clubs and uh he was playing at the irvine improv and uh i i was a uh, 15 or 16 and i snuck in and i watched him do stand-up i kept doing that every year he would come in and then when i actually could go in like buy a ticket i just stayed and i just met him and then uh I remember the first thing uh, he said to me, he's like, he's like, Hey, you're, you're a little awkward, man. And I was like, <laughs> you were like, like, look in the mirror, Norm. Yeah. And, uh, I think he could have been a little spectrum. Don't you think? Oh, he, he definitely had Asperger's. He was a math genius, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, um, I am kind of lost in stand-up now because like I toured with him for nine years. And then when he passed, it was during COVID and stuff. Now it's kind of like, now I'm on my own, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, it's kind of like a weird journey because I was so used to being taken care of. And now it's like, I'm trying to take care of myself. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. And that's a hard thing when you lose someone, Never mind a mentor in this business, but when you lose someone that you love like that and, and you went with them all the time, you skied together and you, you know, so now you go down that slope alone. It's a little more scary without somebody there watching and helping and, helping you maybe understand the things that you didn't really get at the beginning, you know? Yeah. And, but you also like, uh, you had an experience when you, when you were starting up where, I mean, I don't know if she was one of your heroes or whatever, but sure. Shirley Hempful saw you at doing the stand up, and, and she said, Hey, I want you to open up for me. And like, she got you kind of like a first confidence thing. You know what I mean? She got me my first paying gig. Yeah. And she um, told the club owner that if you don't let her open for me this weekend, because she arrived early and was there at open mic night and I was the MC, And she said, if you don't let her open for me, I'm not going on because the club owner was like, she's 17. Yeah. We're not going to pay her money. And she says, you're going to pay her 20 bucks a show, which was like a hundred dollars on a weekend, which for Back me, then, yeah. and when I was 16 or 17, that was a lot of money, you know? Yeah. And so then it began and I ended up uh, hiring her manager to be my manager, Bernie Young. And then he ended up producing my TV show with me. And, you know, I loved her. She was very, very kind. She really helped me. She didn't have to. And, and she helped me throughout my career. And I'm forever grateful to her. 
Don't you think like the, the, the status of currency is kind of funny because like you said, you know, when you were 16, 17, $25 was like a million dollars and now it's like a hundred dollars. You know what I mean? It's kind right. of like, <laughs> so. it's a whole different world. I remember, I remember when my grandmother passed away, she lived with us. And when she died, you know, my dad went in to clean out her stuff and he found all of these envelopes from her social security, I guess that she had signed the check, so they cashed it for her, and there were just envelopes of $100 bills all over her room, in the dresser, in the laundry room. And and um, I remember when he came down and showed it to me, and I thought, oh my God, we're millionaires. Well, we can buy a new house. Like, we did actually end up buying a new car, right? A Plymouth Volare. But um, my Nana definitely kept kept all of her money in in uh in little envelopes upstairs and and boy when i found it i thought that was the end yeah did you ever tell her that you 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 found it or did you like well that was after she passed we went <laughs> oh through. okay yeah yeah so she lived with us her whole life and then in the end she was in the hospital for a while and then when she died um my dad was like we have to clean out the room and money after money after money <laughs> <laughs> I felt it's like, like I won the lottery. Treasure, treasure hunt. Really. It was treasure <laughs> hunting, totally. And then I, I just have two more questions on stand-up, and then we'll move on to the, the talk shows and stuff. Uh, you did the Star Search, which at the time was like a big, probably one of the first uh, you know competition-type shows to help artists and stuff. And now there's so many competition shows. Uh, in the time, do you think like that was healthy for an artist? Because now I watch competition shows and I think it's kind of not healthy. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, it was definitely a different time. There were three channels and then this other channel came on, Fox. And, you know, people were like, what is that going to be? What channel is that? And was nine or five where I grew up. And, um, you know, Star Search was a hugely popular show. It was almost like Idol because there wasn't anything like it on TV. And when I was on, they had actors and actresses who did little scenes. And then they had stand-ups who would only do 120 seconds. When you walked out, you had this, the mic and there was a little digital clock that said 120, 119, 118. Yeah. And that's how you had to do your act. It was very intimidating. I never had like a countdown clock in front of me. But um, I tell you, I went from being pretty much an unknown comic to headlining in the middle of the country. And I didn't really have enough material at the time because I was very young. I was uh, Star Search was 84. So I was 22 years old. And, you know, I won like five times, which got me like twenty eight thousand dollars or something. And I ended up moving to L.A. and buying myself a car. And the guy totally ripped me off because I had all the cash in my pocket. And I like walked in and said, do you have um, any cars here that I could get for twenty six thousand? And they just looked at me like, here's an idiot. Let's reel her in. And I ended up buying a, a car with a stick shift, which I did not know how to drive. And with no air conditioning in the valley in 1986. Is the valley... Uh, no, that's not by San Francisco, right? No, San, the San Fernando. So in like uh, Burbank, you oh, know, okay. or Sherman Oaks in the valley here in, in the L.A. Valley. Because I know San Francisco has a weird area. I don't know if it's called the valley, but uh, I my first car was a stick shift, too. And I bought in San Francisco and they had all these hills. and I didn't know how to drive a stick. So yeah, and that's a hard <laughs> place to learn. <laughs> Very hard place. But uh do you think stand-up comedy like really helped you too when you got your your talk show because you know you're hosting and stuff, but I feel like that made it a huge strength for you. You know what I mean? Totally, totally. The more you're used to dealing with talking as a living, the more you're used to having to listen and and ride the wave of a crowd's enthusiasm or lack thereof and try to find your way through it, you know, safely down the hill or onto the shore or whatever metaphor you want to use. Uh, I, I, um, I think that I love talk shows so much, especially the ones in the daytime, Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas. Those were the ones that I would watch all the time. And I was very familiar. I had put in my 10,000 hours with those three shows. You know, uh, I wasn't always allowed to stay up to watch Johnny Carson. But when I did, I would sneak in 
and listen to my parents listening to it in the living room, you know, and try to hear his monologue. And he was the ultimate, but I, I didn't get to study that one as much as I did the other three. And so when I got the opportunity to do a talk show, I knew that I would know how to do it from the combination of stand up and just from being an ardent fan of the genre. Yeah. And then uh, it was also very interesting because your show was live. Was that a decision you wanted to do or was that just yes. how it came with the deal? Okay. No, that's what I wanted to do because live with Regis and Kelly was the one that I always used to substitute for. And um, I love doing that show. Nobody could say to you after the Dom DeLuise cooking segment, by the way, that didn't go as we like it. Let's do it again. Right. I wanted to make sure like a stand up show, you do it, you go out there for an hour, you perform the entire hour and you walk off and you're done and, and you don't keep tinkering with it. You don't you do another one the next day. And you do another one the next day and you do another one. And eventually you kind of, you know, grind off all the rough edges and you get a smooth stone there and people can easily uh, understand who you are and what you're doing. And, and, you know, it was very, um, very helpful to have a live show that I couldn't go back and pick on. Because I know if I watched myself, I'd be like, oh, why did I wear that? I can't believe I didn't pause there. I really sound too New York in this bit. Like, you know, I would just pick myself apart, I think, as so many performers do. So I liked having the live aspect to it. Do you have a hard time watching yourself, like on the TV or like watching reruns and stuff? Yes. Yeah, I don't I do. really, when, when I see myself, I keep going, you know, <laughs> it's not like, you know, everyone says every time I see League of Their Own, I stop. I'm like, I don't because the, I watch myself when I'm critical. I'm critical of myself too much, you know, much more so I think than people are, you know, I, I think, give myself a, a much harder time than, than others give me. I think, I think all entertainers are like that because like, I'm not famous, but I do stand up. So like whenever I watch myself on, you know, I'm like, uh, I don't like, well, like I, I prefer hearing myself compared to watching myself. Yeah. That's why I love doing a podcast too, because we don't have the visual part yeah. here. Like I, I talk to people like this where I see them and they see me, but we don't ever put that part on because I didn't want it to become a performance. And I didn't want people to worry so much about how they look that you couldn't get into a real deep emotional discussion, you know? And when there's, you know, conversation and there's presentation and stand-up is presentation and podcasts are conversation. So it's a little bit of a different uh, art form, but they definitely help each other. Definitely. I, I think podcasting is actually going to replace like late night stuff eventually because you know, you, you've been a, a, a panel on a guest on late night where you only have that eight or nine minutes for people to know who you are. And, you know, five minutes is probably a joke or a story you did on a movie, but they don't really know you. And I think a podcast is better because we could get more of you and you don't have to be, hey, look at me. You know what I mean? Right. And, and that's because, you know, presentation is the David Letterman show, right? You sit yeah. down, there's nothing really that he's going to ask you that's going to be off the cards, or at least there wasn't for me. It would always be like, you know, so I understand you and Madonna went to dinner and then I have a little Madonna story and, you know, then I do something else. And so there was no conversation. There was really just, let me present my stories and you can react as you do and then we'll go to break and then we're done. Yeah. But it's very hard, especially when you're a host and you watch Letterman and you watch all those shows and you see the guests that you're having tomorrow on Tonight Today. Show yeah. or on Late Late Show. And then you have them and they start the same story. So <laughs> it's not even like you can act surprised because like yeah. I tell my producers, tell me the general gist. OK, he went away with his family, something funny. OK, don't tell me the rest because I needed to have some element of truth there. I couldn't just be like, oh, pretending, 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 you know? And, and I'm, I'm very happy that I'm now in, uh, in podcasting because I would rather at 61 have conversations than have prepared little bits that people perform for me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, how many times uh, did, 
did it take uh, for you to ask Tom Cruise until he said yes? Like, was it a one hit wonder or like? Oh, no, uh, it was from episode one where I told of my love for him. And, um, you know, and he was there shortly thereafter. I mean, he came in before Barbara Streisand did. And uh, it was a big deal. I mean, listen, I went to see him at uh, the movie theater for um, the one where he sang in his underwear. Um, All the uh, right moves or something. What was that? Yeah. Called? I can't I'm even remember now. Risky so, business. Risky business. Yes, excellent. And, um, I went with my sister and we were like, you know, teenagers, right? Or 20 maybe. And and uh, I was like, that guy is dreamy. And Nora Ephron used to say to me, you only like men who are physically beautiful. You like them so pretty that they're almost women. <laughs> like, well, I don't know if I would say that, but he is a stunning creature to look at. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, if you watch the, the interviews, because I did some watching, you know, I watched them when I was a kid, but, you know, I rewatched them for this interview. Your your smile is just so beautiful. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, my God, like, I, I know how you were feeling in that moment, because I feel if John Cusack ever says he'll do my podcast, I would feel like that. You know what I mean? So yes. I, I was like, oh, so Norm and John, I can see a sort of connection or similarity there. Who else did you look up to and think? I, I really admire what they do and I'd like to, to be like them. Uh, well, my, my favorite actor is John Cusack. My favorite non-big actor is Jake Weber, who I eventually did interview. And, uh, you know, I, I like Rick Moranis' comedy. And uh, I kind of like the guys who are kind of like the underdogs. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I find there's something very human about that like i was good friends with bob saget and, oh wow you know so, so you lost two close friends then in a recent period yeah saget saget really because when norm died saget called me every single week to see how i was doing like i was like norm's son like adopted comedy son like you know you it's a simple google search like we did everything together so like when saget when i lost norm Sa i was very grateful for saget because he stepped up and then Saget just died so weirdly. You know what I mean? What so. is what do you think that was? It was like they the the family never really said, and and the, I don't know what the cause of death was. He had blunt trauma, but uh -huh. was that from a fall? Did someone hit him? What happened? I have no idea. But I mean, there there's a joke in the comedy community that uh don't let Keith Reza open up for you. It's uh -huh. not funny, but no, no, right. but that's uh that's the joke going on. So, but uh, I I wanted to ask you 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 actually did interview John Cusack, so oh, I wanted yeah. I wanted to know like how how is that like because I know you've probably interviewed so many tough people and stuff. What was that like? Well, you know, I knew his sister Anne, yeah, and I, I knew Joan, so I was a little comfortable around him. You know, it, I wasn't really that nervous. It's funny, you know, the people who are around my age. I don't have the same feeling of awe as the ones who were there when I was growing up. Right. So like Shirley Hemphill or meeting Florence Henderson when I did, or, you know, some Broadway legend that, you know, Patti Lapone or, you know, who I saw when I was in high school and she did Evita and I was totally enamored and blown away by her talent. And so those people who I held in high regard when I was a kid, I have more um, anxiousness and memory of the interviews than I do when it was someone who was around my age and and I knew their family. So, you know, I find John lovely. I, I've always admired him. I think he's a great actor. I like what he chooses to do politically. I like uh, who he, he is and what he stands for. And, and I think he's a really wonderful man. Yeah. Awesome. Who's the toughest person you you've ever interviewed? Like the, someone you were just like, Oh God, I don't want, like, I'm going to do it because it's a challenge. But like, after you do like, that was really tough. Well, De Niro doesn't no, notoriously doesn't speak on interviews, but when he was doing those movies in the nineties and 
you know, with Meryl and the bicycle. And then she, you know, she would come on with him or one of his co-stars from another film would come on with him. But if you could get him to say a sentence, that was a victory. But I think the hardest one I ever did was Keanu, who was very nervous when he was on and he wasn't really talking. And then I said, cause it was live TV. I'm sorry, but it's a talk show. <laughs> like, come on, help me, please. Just help me a little bit. Yeah. But uh, he is a lovely, lovely person. And I think it was the artifice that threw him. You know, he didn't want to have some fake bullshit thing and, you know, daytime TV and he didn't know me. And, you know, so he he was one of the harder ones. Johnny Depp, when he was on, was so nervous. I had to go talk to him before he came on the set, which I rarely did. I, I just wanted to, you know, I mean, I, I, I would usually say hello to people, but it was never like so-and-so is so nervous you got to talk to them so they'll come on you know? oh my so god went into his trailer and was like nobody gets hurt here i'm your friend i'm not gonna do anything that's gonna throw you off i'm uh, here to make you look good you know so the, we got through it we got through it the the keanu one doesn't really surprise me because my friend jay moore did a movie with him and he said during like usually in movies i mean i've only done a couple so but like you would rehearse the scene then film it and jay told me keanu like had a hard time rehearsing like he was more right. of a let's film it type of guy yeah yeah i love jay more what a nice guy he is yeah yeah i love jay we started together on, on long island years ago oh really oh, i used to well, work with him a little bit yeah oh well i'll tell him you said hi please do and then uh, I wanted to jump in the, into your movie career. I apologize. Just got These got mixed because I accidentally dropped them. But I wanted to ask you about a movie that's really hard to find uh, that I don't know if a lot of people have seen it, but it was a, such a touching story. It was called America. And I wanted to know because, uh, you know, you wrote the script, you know, and you were the star in it and stuff. And it was obviously a story that touched you. How is that transition to writing something like that to filming something like that. I was on my way to LA to work and the show was uh, still on in production. And one of the PAs said, I just read this book. I think you'd like it. And so on the way there, I read the whole book and I was so blown away by it that while I was in LA for the two weeks, I adapted the book into a script. And then I gave it to my agent and she said, we can definitely make this. And so we uh, ended up making the film and we couldn't find the lead character. And um, we were gonna give up. We were at this restaurant called Small Plates and I'm sitting with the other producer, Larry Zaninski. And I said, what are we gonna do? I go, the truth of the matter is, you see that kid sitting right there? It, we should hire that kid. I don't even know if he can act, but you know what? What he looks like, there's his family. That's the story that we're telling. I said, I'm going to go over to him. He's like, are you kidding? I said, I'm just going to go. I go, because we were reading people the next day, the last day of reading people to find this role. Yeah. And I went up to him and I asked him his name and he told me it was Philip. And I said, you know, we have this movie. Have you ever thought about being in a movie of a beautiful look? You really uh, have a calm countenance. It's, it's what the character is. It's about foster care. And, you know, I play the social worker who kind of helps you through your emotional stuff. And well, he came in. And the kid blew us away. Oh, he my God. absolutely blew us away. And then they sent it to the network. And the network was like, um, he's never done anything. You expect to cast this guy who's never done one thing in this movie where we're paying for, you know? But they let us do it. And um, it was fantastic. He was oh. amazing. It's one I of the things I'm most proud of. I'm glad you brought that one up. Because not a lot of people are familiar with that one. Yeah, I I because, you know, when you said yes, like I because I try really hard. I know sometimes it's impossible. Some questions get re asked and stuff, but I, I try really hard not to ask the same questions and try and make it unique. And then I saw that movie and I just thought it was so good. And I was like, well, thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. I was really proud of the, the director who's French Canadian and so talented. And I loved that he saw the movie when he read the script in his head. And, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece about a horrible part of the United States, uh, the foster care system. And it really needs to be blown up 
and redone start to finish. And there are half a million kids in foster care and only 300,000 licensed foster homes. So there are kids every day lost in the system, mulling about who age out and never have a family to love them. And, and it's a tragedy. And yeah. uh, I hope that, that that film would do something. And we did go to Washington and talk to people about the crisis of foster care and, you know, it's a, a very big deal and, and it definitely needs attention still. Do you think that it, it's gotten worse with the pandemic? Because oh, like, yes. Yeah. So. Oh, yes. So much so. You know, after the hurricane um, in New York 10 years ago, I guess that was maybe even more, maybe 15 years ago. I don't know. I'd have to look that up. But um, there was such devastation that many families who had lost their homes who found themselves pregnant were thinking to adopt, to adopt the baby out because the crisis, the hurricane had destroyed their ability to, you know, recover. And they didn't necessarily want to place their baby, but they felt that they had to. So yeah. when crisis happens, uh, there are a lot more families that, that look to uh, adoption, um, you know, as a, as a final and last resort. And uh, God knows I wouldn't want my kid in foster care in America. I mean, adoption is different, but still there need to be better laws and, and, and uh, national standards and uh, ways that the birth mothers don't get abused or taken advantage of. And it's a very complicated issue. I'm the mother of uh, five adopted children and I had two foster kids. So I understand uh, the issues and have been involved in them and and it's very complicated you know i mean my children are um are very uh okay with their adoption i you know they uh i don't know they there doesn't seem to have been the stigma that so many people suffer from i'm not sure why that is but uh you know we talk about it we discuss it we you know and uh it's just a it's a very tumultuous topic now, especially online or on TikTok. There's yeah. a bunch of adoptee voices that, you know, feel as though they've been left out of the conversation and that their point of view should be the main focus and possibly the only point of view, which I don't really agree with. I think when you adopt a baby, you, the birth family and that child are in like a connected unit forever because yeah. the child's going to grow up and maybe want to search you out and you know, we're going to meet each other and I'm going to look you in the face and thank you, you know, for, for placing your child and, and giving my life meaning, you know, but I also realize what a primal wound that is for the infant separated from their mother and the smells, the sounds, the sounds of her voice, the heartbeat, everything's different. And, you know, there is trauma definitely associated with adoption. Well, I'm glad you made that movie because it sounds like like that was one that really touched your heart of all the you know stuff you did. So that was awesome. Yeah, I love when I read a script or a book and and I can see the film in my head, you yeah. know, and then to just sit down and and type it out. I was very uh, I was very possessed with getting the story told. And then we we have to spend a couple seconds on another stakeout, which I feel. <laughs> is probably one of those sequels that's probably better than the original. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, listen, Emilio and Richard were so funny and Emilio and I could not work together after lunch because we had very early calls. We were staying and shooting. We were shooting on an island and we had to take a helicopter there, but Emilio was afraid of the helicopter. So he took a two and a half hour boat trip every day to the island and Richard and I would be waving at the boat as we were flying in, you know, but um, he was the funniest. Emilio was the funniest guy. I loved working with him and we would laugh so much. There are some scenes where he and I are in a scene together and you just see our shoulders. Like, you know, you can tell, like if you watch some of those scenes up close, you see him trying to bite his lip and, you know, but we got to the point where we would get in trouble like little kids where they'd be like, stop it now. We have to yeah. shoot this. I'm like, no, 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 I'll get it. I'll get it. 
But um, I love that movie. I love Richard Dreyfuss. I think he's one of our best actors out there. And he's written a beautiful book about teaching children civics in high school, how we haven't taught that since he was a boy and, and that that's really a problem in our society today. And I definitely think he's right. Yeah. I also love the, 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 the scene of with you and Richard and then the other family. I apologize. I don't know the, the actor's names, but where you guys were just saying, Oh, I'm psychic and all that stuff. And then like, I just, <laughs> I know all the answers. I can't watch Jeopardy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you, it's great when you work with a cast and a director that doesn't mind when you improvise. There was a lot of improvisation. Who's better at improvisation than Richard Dreyfus? I don't like the panties drying on the line. You know, I, mean, he, <laughs> I was going to say, who's better than Rosie O'Donnell? I mean, you were great in that. Well, thank you so much. But I, I really had a great, great time. And it was the first time I had to carry a gun in a movie, and it was right after uh, Brandon Lee's son got killed. Uh, oh, Brandon Lee crow, got killed. Yeah. Yes, on the crow. That's when we were shooting it, and everybody was so nervous. I had squibs. I got shot at the end, and everybody, the actor who had to shoot me was like, I don't want to do it. I'm afraid. And they're like, no, we checked it. <laughs> but it was right after it happened. You know, It was so tragic and so... Uh, so scary do you think like because i mean now that you brought that up like it seems like when people film movies now that do involve guns you know i'm not saying guns are a good thing or a bad thing but movies the stories they do have it and i feel like with the whole alec baldwin thing i think like now it's more like scarier you know what i mean well it was always scary because people had died before the rust accident but uh, you know, the Brandon Lee thing, that was a, a pretty big to do as well. And uh, Miguel Ferrar was his best friend and he was on the set with us in the, in the movie and he was so upset. And uh, one night he was at the bar and he was, you know, throwing some back and crying and, and he says, Rosie. And I go, yeah, he goes, come here. And I said, hello, this is Rosie. And the voice says, hello, this is Rosie. And it was his mom, Rosemary Clooney. Oh my God. Yeah. So I talked to her, we became friends and then she ended up on my show for a bunch of times, you know, oh, but nice. it's a lovely memory of that with a horrible reason to remember it. But yeah, I think that the, you know, accidents happen when budgets get cut and when they try to cut corners here and there and how a live bullet got in that gun, I have no idea. And, yeah. um, you know, I know that when I was just in a series, um, American Gigolo, I played a detective. You know, I had a, a gun on set and I was always very conscious of it. You know, I mean, you said they're not good things or bad things, guns. I, I think they're bad things, you know. No, I, I didn't. I, I said, like, in a script, the fact is, is they'll, they'll be in a strip. In oh, a strip. yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. But just in my life, I, I, I think, you know, we are a gun crazed country. There are so many guns. There are so many deaths. It's the number one cause of death of children now is gunshots in America. I mean, it's embarrassing and it needs to stop, you know, and I wish that, you know, well, the Second Amendment, there were many things about the Constitution that we had to change and amend as time went on. And uh, the access to guns is, is one of them, I believe. So I have four more questions. These are pretty quick, though. So, okay. Uh, so the Flintstone set, how cool was that? Unbelievable. We drove out to the desert, and there it was, my cartoon come to life, you know? Yeah. And the cars, everything they made, the, the department, the prop department was so, so clever. And I was hanging up Fred's clothes, and the little clothespins that we used were baby alligators that when you opened it, their mouth opened and then they made their eyes go. So it looked like they were alive, but they were props, you know, yeah. but I have, I have two of those. I took them from the set one day, but uh, yeah, I, I love doing that movie. I thought it was so much fun, you know, John Goodman, Rick Moranis and Elizabeth Perkins. And, you know, we all had fun. Rick Moranis is a great guy. John Goodman was at that time still drinking quite a lot. And some days, you know, you'd see him in scenes a little wobbly. You know? 
<laughs> but he pulled it through. He did it. And he's doing well now. He's thin and sober. And I'm happy for him. He's a wonderful guy. You know, I, I looked like the kid who played Bam Bam when I was a kid. So, like, All uh, right. yeah. So, like, I don't know. I thought maybe I could be Bam Bam in the sequel, but I didn't. No, whatever. You didn't get it. That's all <laughs> right. Get You'll it. get another one. You'll do yeah. uh, the 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 story of Bam Bam grown up and with the challenges he had. You know. Oh, that'd be cool. Write, write that movie. You could make it a, a big hit for yourself. Definitely. And then uh, the the other thing I wanted to ask you is um, when you started to do your podcast uh, onward, which I really like, and I think it's very unique and very you know. Great. But do you think that maybe you did that because a lot of people asked you to redo the Rosie O'Donnell show? Like, was that maybe something that played into that? Yes. And I really think, you know, you can't catch lightning in a bottle twice. And I, uh, you know, it's a young person's game and I see the people doing it now. And I just feel like at 61, I don't need to go work that hard. You know, I was very lucky to have made crazy money when I made it. And, you know, although I have five children, uh, you know, we've been lived a privileged and lucky life. And I, I am not in the position where I need to do something like that for work. And if I were, I would try to do that. But uh, but I'm not. And I'm in a position where I can do something and and stay home. As you know, my daughter is 10 and she has autism. And, you know, this is a, a difficult time, uh, 10 through, you know, 16, the doctor says, and all of the psychiatrists say this is the time that you need to be present most and provide as clear uh, boundaries and, and steering kind of where the boat's going for the family, you know? Um, so I, I don't think I would have time now at 61 with my life as it is to do another talk show. And um, I think that doing a podcast fits in with my world and I really I'm thrilled that I get to do it. I'm so happy that you like it. At first, I thought it was going to be too boring, like Rosie talking with her friends, but people seem to enjoy it. No, no, I, I love it because, you know, I think um, you've always been one of those people that give, you know, hope to so many different diversities of people, too. You know, not just the gay community, but also the autistic community and, you know, all this stuff and i i think maybe part of you realizes it but i also think part of you doesn't realize how special you are to everybody you know what i mean uh, so well yeah i mean i i think when things come into my life and world i don't think it's an accident you know so it's very hard to spend a night uh away from my kid when we're having dinner and socializing which is something that she needs help with both those things she has very limited food intake Right. She only likes a few things. And, um, you know, you can't even give her a cookie if it's not the kind of cookie that she wants. You know, I'm the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So what are your go? What are your safe foods? I like macaroni and cheese and the uh, the oatmeal cream cookies, you know, the the little yeah. Debbie ones. I love yes. those. Like, yeah. That's basically all I eat. How about when you go to a restaurant? What do you do? I ask him for macaroni and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> you go to the kids meal go to the kids yeah. meal yeah, yeah. They you know say it's for 12 or under i was like oh i'm 12 <laughs> i always i always say i'll pay double but i need to have that for her no but uh you know it's funny because there's so many things associated with autism that people don't realize and for you to not have been diagnosed till you were 25 probably very interesting because 13, people yeah. were oh 13 13, I don't yeah. know why I heard 25, 13. That's much better. But I'm sure your parents were like, why won't he eat anything? Why yeah. won't he eat anything? You know, when people say that about about my kid and they they say friends of mine come over who have children and they go, let me try. I'm like, eh, good luck. You know, call me when it's done. I'll be in the other room. But uh, there are so many aspects of autism that I find fascinating that if I could sort of spend the last third of my life really um, advocating and uh, exposing the world of autistics, I would be very happy with that, you know, yeah. because it's so prevalent now and no one knows why it's more prevalent. Some people think, oh, we're just diagnosing it better, but I don't believe that. I think there's some shift going on, you know, in consciousness and in, in um, what's happening, you know, you know, 
I don't know. I'm very intrigued by the whole subject. I think it would be cool if, you know, Dakota would ever want to do it. I mean, obviously it's her, her choice. If you, if you interview her, her on on yeah i think that'd it's be funny awesome. because yeah she might do it but you know just like she wants to do tiktoks with me and it how it happens is she'll go let's do one now like i can't yeah. ever suggest it i can't say <laughs> hey well moment. i did say to her i said why don't we talk about the barbie movie she's like no you know <laughs> that's the end of that so my two final questions one if you could go back in a time machine and talk to a younger rosie o'donnell Mm. Uh, what what advice or what would you tell your younger self now that you know today that it goes so fucking quick yeah i can't believe that i'm 61 years old i can't believe it now when i look at my career and all the things i've done and all the people i've got to meet and all the accolades and awards you know i'm kind of amazed and and then it looks like okay i see where you're 61 but inside I don't feel like 61 and every year I rent a house on the Jersey shore and my children come and they each bring a friend and I bring my two best friends from my street where I grew up, Jackie and Jeannie, who are still my best friends. And we go and we all just hang out for, you know, a couple of weeks there on the shore. And there's nothing better to that than that to me because some people don't have friends of 58 years, but I do. When I was three years old, I knocked on her door, Jackie's door across the street and said, do you have anyone here three? And we've been best friends since then. And to have that kind of a relationship, you know, so many women crave it and so many women have it. And, and those ones usually write in and go, I have a genie and a Jackie, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so I would tell myself, you know, slow down and, and um, slow down and really savor every moment. Because when it comes to your 60s and you go, if I'm lucky, I got 25 years left. You know, that's 25 summers. If I'm lucky, very yeah. lucky, you know. I'm really glad you said that and you didn't say, don't do Keith Reza's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> No, but definitely don't let them open for you. Uh, well, Rosie, I love you very much. Thank you for doing this. Where can the folks at home follow and support you? Uh, Rosie at everything on Instagram, on TikTok. It's at Rosie. And, uh, you know, let me know what you think. And also onward, we have our our podcast and and uh, that's it. I do TikTok lives every so often, so drop in. But listen, if you're ever doing stand-up here in the L.A. area, let me know. I want to come watch. Oh, that would be great. That would be awesome. Do Thank you go on a lot here? Do you go on in L.A.? Not not in a while, but, I mean, I, I'm trying. I mean, I'm, I, I open for T.J. Miller right now, but he's always in New York, so when he goes to L.A., he lets me do it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean. I'll send okay. you my special and stuff. So you I'd love to see it. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, Rosie, thank you so much for doing it. And uh, you really, thanks for being my best friend for 45 minutes. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a great day, Rosie. Right. Take care. Bye. All right, guys. That was an interview with Rosie O'Donnell. Subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend, and we'll see you guys next week. You're listening to Razor Riffs with Keith Razor and Alan Lee right here on LA Talk Radio. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcast. Give us some feedback. Good, honest, terrible, doesn't matter. Also, follow us on social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Razor Riffs. I am also on Stereo if you would like to chat with me there. www.stereo.com slash Keith and on Cameo, www.cameo.com slash Keith If you enjoyed the show, please send us a donation on the Anchor app. We really do appreciate it, and we'll rift with you again soon.